Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. I'm Jared Robinson. I'll be talking about, uh, in a, in a two-day class, uh, my experience most recently with the congregation uh, that I serve at, which is Southern Hills Church of Christ in Abilene, uh, Texas. Uh, how we came as a leadership, especially how our elders came, to make a decision that they knew going in, if, if they made a decision really one way or the other, they were going to make a, a huge impact in the life of our church. And uh, so if you're not here for that class, you can leave now and nobody's going to judge you. But uh, before we, uh, we, we start to talk, let, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time we have to be together. I, th- I thank you for each person that's here. I thank you for all of the, the many roles that you have called all of us to serve in and our church families. Uh, we're especially thankful this morning for the ways that you call our elderships uh, to seek your will, uh, to seek your preferred future for the church, and to guide the church in that way. We live in a time, God, you know, where leadership is especially difficult, uh, and, and there are polar opposites, it seems, in every conversation, and people have a hard time listening. And in that kind of situation, it it can be really tempting for us to simply maintain, uh, to pull back, uh, to try to keep the peace. And God, we know you've called us to something far more uh, risky than that for the sake of the world. So we just pray that as we talk about this, you would have have us in a place where our hearts can be open uh, to dream about what it is you're trying to do through us uh, for the sake of, of other people that you love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I had been at Southern Hills for about two years. I had been told from several experienced preachers that you need to preach somewhere for about seven years before you try to do anything major. Uh, that's a long time. Uh, and and so I was, I was, two years in, I wasn't trying to do anything other than preach as well as I could and get to know people, get to know the story of the church. But as is true for all of us, when you step into a church experience, they have a story that they've been living together, and they're ready for certain things um, as, as a group when, when the, the Spirit prompts them to be open to those conversations. And so I had some elders come to me. Uh, the, we, we have a structure at Southern Hills where we have... 16 elders, and so uh, we have an administrative team of elders, but we also have a shepherding uh, chair who, for a year at a time, is trying to, to think through how can the, the, the shepherding elders really pastor our church and, and be good stewards of, of what it is that we're trying to be as a community. Those were the elders who came to me to say, we really feel like we need to study the issue of expanding possibly women's roles in the life of our church. Now, I want to be clear, uh, we're not going to be digging deep into the theology of that in this class, because what, I, what I'm wanting us to do is, regardless of the content of the decision we're trying to make, I want us to figure out what the best practices are, um, what works, and what doesn't work, in my experience. Um, so... They came to me and said, that's what we, we need you to help structure a study for us. Uh, and going in, it was pretty clear that at that time we had 19 elders. It was pretty clear they were representative of the church in terms of doctrinal disagreements over this. 
Um, and more than that, when you're an elder or you're a minister, it's not just your personal doctrinal position. There's also a lot of contagious anxiety about what's going to happen if. Um, and we're also living in a culture where if it gets out to your church that your leadership's studying something, the assumption is change is coming. Right? It, it's already decided. And it, it truly hadn't been fully decided. So we made a, a covenant promise to one another that because we weren't ready to explain what was going on, this was going to be a confidential study at the beginning. Um, and, and to an amazing degree, our shepherds and their spouses maintained that. And I think part of it was they knew they weren't ready. Um, we were still studying. We were still praying. We were still thinking about it. Uh, so... I, along with the rest of our ministry staff, started to think about, okay, what does that study look like? And as you know, for virtually all churches of Christ, even though we're autonomous congregationally, we have very similar leadership structures. So you can guess the staff was primarily going to serve as resources. We were not going to have a vote uh, when it came down to what was going to happen. And at Southern Hills, very few things have to be voted on. But changes in worship have to be voted on. Uh, significant changes in worship have to be. That, that's an elder-only uh, decisive vote about what's going to happen. And part of that communicates, right, that the one thing that's the hardest thing for us to talk about is anything that, that connects to that time of worship. And part of that, and, I, and this was something we had to learn as a, as a leadership, is that whether we intended for this to happen or not, in the churches of Christ, worship has become the place where we feel like if we can get it right there, God will look favorably on us in all the rest of the hours of our week where we're not perfect. In other words, we turn worship into a time to justify ourselves before God, which is not worship. Um, in, in fact, I'm pretty sure that healthy worship is confessing we're not worthy. <laughs> before God, and God declaring us through grace to be worthy, um, that that's the narrative we're supposed to be uh, enacting over and over again. So one of the things we had to say up front was, look, we know that worship is incredibly touchy because of our, our past as a heritage, and also because it's the only time the whole church is in one room together, right? I mean, you know, churches get in fights over uh, the, the paint that's going to be in the sanctuary, right? Because it's the one place we're all together, and everybody thinks, look, I, I've got a vested interest in this. Um, we, before this decision, had our, our pews were breaking down in our church, and we had to go to chairs. We had people leave our church over chairs uh, because it was a sign of things to come, right? And some of them think they were right, but <laughs> the chairs had nothing to do with the, the other decision we were going to make. It was just that, I don't know if you tried to do this before, pews are the most expensive kind of chair to replace, that's a specialty item, right? And everybody knows it in, in the, the pew world. So we felt like to be careful with our finances and, and faithful to that, we were going to go a, a less expensive route. We had people leave over that, right? So our elders have all that in the background. And you, if you're a church leader, you know there's always fires starting. And sometimes our elders are unintentionally, and, and staff members are uh, arsonist firemen. Right? They start the fire, and they don't know they started it, and they're whining about it. And you think, well, you started this fire. You need to put it out. Um, and, and we get nervous. And so at any given time, you've got all these little spot fires you're trying to deal with. 
And then we had elders saying, so why in the world would we ever talk about this? This is crazy, right? And they have all these anecdotal stories of how this goes at other churches. Um, and anecdotal stories trump data all the time. You know, if somebody knows somebody who knows somebody at a church that lost half their church over this, that means that's what's going to happen at our church. Um, and so one of the things that was compelling to me was that as a whole, our elders resisted that temptation. And they didn't have a small group of people who had come to them saying, hey, we're core people and we care about the future of this church. And if you don't talk about women's roles, we're leaving. In my experience, most of the other churches I've worked with, elders don't take that kind of decisive moment unless they're held hostage. Um, which is a really bad precedent to set, but it's easy to fall into it. In fact, we had people asking us, did you, I hope you were held hostage, is basically what they were saying. I hope somebody came to you and demanded that you study this, because otherwise you're crazy for studying this, right? And it was so important to be able to tell people, there was no, there was no group of members who was demanding that we study this and seek the Lord's will on this. We collectively came to a place where we wanted we wanted to open our hearts to this possibility. Um, and it's been interesting to watch people take that in and think about it and recalibrate their expectations of, of our eldership. So they came to me, they said, let's study this. And I, I, we ended up looking at over 35 churches of Christ who had made this, had taken this journey. And as you might expect, there were lots of things when we talked to them about what they wish they had done differently. Um, and so we thought, okay, we want to at least avoid, we don't know how to do the perfect process, but we at least want to avoid all the things people are telling us was either a mistake or something they wish they had done differently. Right? So the first was to take a significant amount of time at the beginning to pray and to be trained enough in biblical interpretation to have an informed opinion about what the two prohibitive texts in the New Testament meant, right? Um, what I had to keep saying was nobody in our leadership is entitled to an uninformed opinion. I mean, you can have it. You just can't share it in a meeting. You've, you've got to take the time to be well-equipped to talk about what we're talking about. The, the church deserves that. The leaders deserve that. You need to take the time to educate yourself. And as you know in our tradition, it can be challenging, not just because of our current cultural situation where all of us have so much going on and we're so distracted and less and less people, all these studies are saying less and less people read anything longer than Twitter, uh, a tweet. You know, it's, it's hard to, to learn, to do reading that's in-depth and you have to focus on that. That's already there. But in our tradition, you've also got kind of a baseline uh, distrust of experts, Right? And you've got a sense that, wait a minute, if we go back to read this text and we find something there that we hadn't found before, aren't we just making the Bible say whatever we want it to say? Right? That's the fear. Uh, I grew up in a, in a congregation where it was pretty clear to me that if we went back to the text for the sake of somebody else to read it in a new light, that was a bad motivation to go back to the Bible. That was a weak, biased reason to go back, right? We held that position pretty well until elders' daughters started getting divorced. And then we started going back to the text for them. 
And I've come to the place in my life where I really believe that may be the most gospel reason of all to ever go back to the text is to find a way to love someone better than we've ever loved them before. That's not a bad reason. Uh, It's a gospel reason. So we kind of had to keep saying over and over, okay, we're going to train ourselves and and we're going to be educated and we're going to be lifelong learners in this. We're going to model for our church that we don't believe we already know everything there is to know. Um, And we're going to be clear with our church that the primary motivating reason for this is we believe that the way we're currently doing church is making some people feel less, less important, less heard than other people. And that that, that at its core is not something we think God wants us to do. Right? So those were our guiding principles. So we started out, I gave them a book. You may have heard of this book. It's called The Blue Parakeet. It's by Scott McKnight. Um, it is a really accessible book about interpretation. Right? Because in our, in our tradition, the idea is the Bible says what it means and means what it says. Yeah, it's clear until it isn't. Right? And even though a lot of our folks use that uh, kind of, they may not even know this language, right? But we used to try to read the Bible with patternism really clearly about command and example and necessary inference. The tricky part with all that is, you know, Paul commands us to greet one another with a holy kiss, and I don't want that happening. And we don't do that, right? We immediately say, well, there's a, there's a spirit behind that command that says we want to be welcoming to one another, which I think is a legitimate <laughs> application of that text. But it's still, nevertheless, a decision we're making, you know, when Jesus says, I want you to wash one another's feet as I have washed yours. We immediately say, well, he doesn't actually mean we have to physically wash each other's feet. He means we need to serve in ways that, that no one else maybe wants to serve in right? Those are interpretive decisions we're making. They don't feel like that because people before us fought and bled and died over those interpretations. Uh, But we we weren't a part of that. So it feels like it's self-evident that that's not how you would take those texts. Same thing with examples. You know, unless it's Jesus, you can't trust anybody's example in the Bible. You know, you don't want to be just like Peter, and I'm definitely sure I don't want to be just like Paul. Right? You remember in Galatians when Paul's talking about how he calls Peter out in front of everybody? And he, he sounds like he, he thinks that was the right thing to do. I'm pretty sure Peter disagreed about how Paul handled that. Right? So then we've got to make decisions about when do I want to be like Paul? And when do I want to be like Peter? And how are they helping me be more like Christ? And then you get into this huge gray area of necessary inference, which thankfully gets us to where we can, you know, if we have enough resources, we own buildings, and we can put air conditioning in them, even though the first century church didn't have those things. Um, our folks don't realize that that's all behind the way they read scripture. So, so for a lot of our people, they, they thought they were being taught how to read scripture when they were actually being taught what scripture meant by somebody who'd done the work. But But then to try to say to them, yeah, but there's actually layers of additional meaning that maybe we missed, starts to feel like the preacher who took a few years of Greek is starting to make the Bible say whatever he wants it to say. And that feels like cheating to people who don't feel equipped to argue back, right? So we wanted our elders to be able, in very clear ways, to understand that this will not be the last issue we have to engage as the leadership holding on to scripture and a commitment to scripture 
but helping people understand that you have to make choices every time you come to the text about how you're going to listen and what kinds of questions you're going to ask. If you come to Scripture consistently trying to find justification for doing what you're already doing, you will find it, and you will be unfaithful in the way you read Scripture. Scripture is not written to justify what we're already doing. It's written to constantly challenge what we're already doing, to see, is it in line with Jesus, and are there ways, are there steps we can take to get closer to the way of Jesus? Nobody can make you read Scripture that way. God won't even make you read Scripture that way, right? You have to be open to reading Scripture that way. Um, and the elders had to learn how to do that. So we give them this book, Scott McKnight, uh, Blue Parakeet. They read it. And I, I made this request, and it ended up being the thing they complained about the most. But I would make the request again, because I think I did a poor job of explaining it to them. So if I do it again, and I will do it again, I'm going to be clearer. What I asked them to do was read the, the Scott McKnight book and other materials we gave them that were intended to help them think about the, the task of interpretation. Uh, and what I asked them to do was for a three-month period through a summer, I said, you can talk to one another. I don't want you talking to one another trying to win an argument. I have no problem if you just need to confess or vent or, or share where you are in your journey, but don't be persuasive. They didn't talk to each other at all for three months. <laughs> and I, I mean, they even kind of, it became like we were keeping a secret uh, from each other. And we would, I, I would start to talk about it, and one of them would say, I thought we weren't supposed to talk about it. And I would say, no. You can talk about it. You just can't argue about it yet. We're going to argue about it, but not yet. Um, and they took that to me, and they weren't going to talk. And when I interviewed them, uh, and I'm, I'm going to give you some handouts here in a little bit to give you the feedback that I got. But when I interviewed them over and over, they kept saying, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. If we weren't allowed to talk to each other, I didn't know what to do because I don't trust myself enough which I actually think is a really important confession for a leader to make, <laughs> right? That I know what I'm thinking because I'm, I'm reading this stuff, but I, I needed to know what everyone else was thinking because I didn't know if one of our elders, our, his quote was, I thought I was just talking to myself. I couldn't know, I didn't know if it was the Holy Spirit talking to me or if it was just me talking to me. When I got into the room with the rest of the guys and I heard them saying things that I had felt, I knew it was the Holy Spirit. That was really important. So, However, I, I think it's important before we get in a room together to reason this out that everybody's taking some time to learn, to reflect, and to pray. So that's what we did. And then we started meeting. We met three consecutive months. The first meeting uh, was designed, and at this point they've read Scott McKnight's book, and they've also read three reading packets that were, were all probably would take about an hour to read. Um, and it was all, all of it was trying to aim them towards an honest conversation together about where they were coming from, what they were bringing with them to the issue, um, and, and then some tools, basic tools on what's going on in these texts that we all have heard of and we assumed we knew, but maybe we hadn't read faithfully. Right? So we get to the first meeting and we, I, I know the elders enough to know where they are. 
because they didn't talk to each other. They all talked to me a lot. Um, and they hated the blue parakeet. They hated it. They quoted it more in their interviews than anything else. <laughs> they didn't know they were, but they were quoting it. And the reason that became so important was they could disagree with Scott McKnight all they wanted, and they didn't feel like they were having a conflict with me. So that became a really important relief valve, but it was also shaping them. Uh, it, the image I get is when you have to take medicine that tastes horrible. Right? You don't like it, but it actually, it, it's doing something important. Uh, the reason they hated the book was because McKnight was clear about where he was going with his interpretive strategy, and it had to do with women's roles in the life of the church. And they felt like anytime you start with an agenda and you're clear about it, they can't trust the reasoning that got you there. So I said, in other words, you'd rather him have a hidden agenda? Well, no, no, not that. And I said, well, well, don't we all have agendas when we come, anytime we come to a text and we have questions and hopes and fears and, well, yeah, I just didn't like him. I didn't like the way he talked about it, right? So, it, but, but, but that material became really important because then it wasn't just Jared up talking to them. It was someone they could disagree with safely and we could talk about it together. But we get in this first meeting and what we did was we put them in triads. Uh, people who seemed pretty non-anxious was one person, an elder who was kind of just, you know, along for the ride, at least initially. One elder who was very anxious uh, that we keep things the same and one elder who was hopeful that we might make some changes. And it worked out where we were able to create triads for all of our guys, where, where they had all those voices together, and then we added our staff to each one of those triads. So we almost had a staff member in each one of them. And we basically just said to them, emotions that are hidden end up driving us, when we, and we don't know it. So I need you to name what you're feeling at the outset. Um, this was really hard to do with a group of men in the Churches of Christ. None of them wanted to say they were afraid. None of them wanted to say they were angry. In fact, this was one of the challenges throughout this entire process, not only in the leadership, but in the life of our church, and that was we so devalue emotion that the only argument someone can make is you don't care about the Bible. They don't think that we're going to listen to them if they say to us, this just makes me really sad because the church I grew up in didn't do these things. And I'm not interested in having a theological debate with you. I'm just really sad. Nobody talks like that in a church of Christ. They leave. Right? Um, no, nobody says, I'm just really scared. Especially not men. They throw a fit and walk out of the meeting early. But they're scared. Um, and so it was a challenge, and we had, we had trained all of our staff members who were in those triads to keep asking questions <laughs> until the elders said what they were actually feeling. Um, and that became, as we looked back over the interviews, that one meeting and that time of sharing where they were coming from at the beginning was a formative moment of realizing, look, we're all bringing stuff with us to this. Um, several elders mentioned daughters and granddaughters. And that was a difficult thing because our guys are so conditioned to think that decision-making should be objective and neutral that they bristled initially at anyone saying, I'm doing this for my granddaughter. 
like that was a bad reason. In fact, one time, one of our elders sent a picture of his seven granddaughters to the full eldership and said, this is why I'm staying in this difficult conversation. One of our elders emailed back, those aren't people, those are just issues. To the whole group. Okay? This is, this is how difficult this can be uh, in our context. We have an elder with his own grandchildren who knows how much parent, you know, grandparents love grandchildren, I think, more than parents love children. I don't know how that works, but it seems at least they have more fun, right? Um, he has his own grandchildren, and he knows, and yet, because he thought somebody was using a person as the reason, it was invalid. People should be the primary reason we reread scripture. Always. But we were able to say that, and I was proud. It, it, one of the hardest things for me in all this, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow as well, was ministerial restraint throughout all of this was hugely important. This could not be a decision that felt like it was foisted on the eldership from an agenda-driven staff who wanted this to happen. Um, there were several reasons that couldn't happen. One was they were all going to get cornered if we made a decision and, and rolled it out, they were all going to get cornered in the lobby from different people. And what they could not, we couldn't have them saying, well, Jared, well, Holly, right, who's, who's one of the ministers on our staff who's a young woman, um, they had to be able to say, let me tell you how I came here, how I got to this place. Um, and so there were times, like, when that email went out, I'm telling you, I had, I had a, a not good email uh, in terms of Christian uh, posture. <laughs> I had an email ready to go, and one of our uh, quiet elders who almost never speaks, he responded to that elder who said, these aren't, these aren't people, these are, this is an issue. He said, brother, I know you didn't mean that. That's all he wrote, and it never came up again. Right? It never came up again. Um, and so it was, it was so important to let the elders as a whole self-regulate how they were going to treat each other in the midst of this. I thought it was a huge invitation that they'd allowed me to structure the study, but I was really cognizant of not stepping over that. Right? So we have this meeting. They share their, their thoughts. At the end of that meeting, we had Holly, who is a 28-year-old middle school minister, um, we let her talk about what, what was at stake for her in this decision. Um, that was a really important moment for them to hear from her, but it was really hard. Because what they heard in her, even though they had hired her and they support her, and she's, you know, our middle school minister, they had no idea all the pain that she, she was still bearing from the way she had been treated by other churches and by our church and by us. And she, she talked about all of it. And she had moments when she was talking through clenched teeth because she was angry, and she had moments when she was crying. And all of that felt way too human. <laughs> and it was really important medicine for us to take. It was gospel medicine for us to take. And I will never forget, we circled around her to pray for her, and one of the elders who was having the hardest time with the issue, in fact, the same elder who sent that email that said, those aren't people, those are issues, 
he prayed over her. And he cried as he prayed over her. And he wasn't there yet. I promise you, he wasn't, he wasn't too, he's still not there. He's still an elder at our church. He, he tells me every time I'm alone with him, we made the wrong decision, Jared. He's never told a member that. Um, and he's struggling with it, but he's still there. Uh, and to me, that says something about the challenge, but also the opportunity of humanizing everybody in the church and in the leadership to say, this, is about, this isn't about women in leadership. This is about Holly. That is such an important shift. If you keep this abstract, um, immediately it's going to become, well, are we giving into the culture and, you know, feminism's out there everywhere, and is that what this is about? We had lots of elders that talked about it, and I just kept saying, if you think God wants for women the same thing the world wants for women, you don't know God, right? This is not that. Um, Holly's not asking for that. Holly's asking to be seen and to be heard and to have a place at the table that the rest of us who are on staff, who happen to be men, naturally are given. Okay, That's not what you're hearing about on the news uh, that, that you may be tempted to think is what this is about. In the same way, right, in the background of this becomes the entire liberal agenda that everybody gets nervous about. So then the next thing we're talking about is, where well, are we going we to study and make a decision about same-sex attraction? And it's like, can we handle one massive conversation at a time. But they understand intuitively that the church has dragged its feet on all of these conversations because there's so much at stake. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, every voice I hear, including my own every day, is that I've got to do everything I can to save the church I work at, except for God's voice that says the only way to save the church you work at is to get your church to working and save the world. And we're so worried about what's going on and, and who we're going to lose and what's going to happen that we are so, it's not on purpose, it's from anxiety and fear, but we are so self-focused. We have lost that mission to the world that is the only way, that's our only salvation in terms of survival. It's how God designed the church. The moment the church is only existing for the sake of the church and church members, it's done. It may not know it, but it's done. Um, and so our elders had some sense. We have to keep going, right? We have to keep going because we're building a church that our children and our grandchildren aren't going to, aren't going to be a part of. And we were talking about reaching out to people in our, in our community, in our neighborhood, and saying, you know, this is going to become a stumbling block if we haven't talked about this and if we don't have some way to, to explain why church is different in this regard with men and women from anywhere else they go. How, how are we going to deal with that if we're effective in bringing people in who have no background? And that, that became a driving force in this, to keep going. I kept expecting at one point to come into these meetings and for them to just call it off. Because we were under a lot of stress, just worrying um, and yet they kept going because they had some idea of what was at stake. The second meeting we had, I kind of walked through a, a biblical overview. You know, there's really, I mean, if you boil it down, it's 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11, and 12. There are four verses in the entire Bible that are, 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 we use to say um, God prohibits all of this. Four verses. <laughs> So the second meeting, I went through what I thought was a, as good as I could do in a couple of hours. 
and I did a ton of talking in two hours, to try to walk through what, what do we believe is there in Scripture that we haven't paid attention to through the whole sweep of the story. One of the key uh, challenges I gave them was that I felt like we, we had misread the fall in Genesis 3 as prescriptive instead of descriptive. In other words, we thought God was saying this was the way God wanted things to be when he clearly says it's not the way he wants things to be. And then Paul makes it clear that Jesus undoes the curse. So how's the church living into that future? Right, that's the question. How's, how's the ch- church actually embracing all the things that Jesus restores or, or unravels that's broken? And do we have the courage to see that, or are we going to decide it's too costly to deal with it? That became one of the key interpretive lenses that we started to use. But even if you go to the last chapter of Romans and you see all of the different women that Paul is naming and raising up, and, and even if you get through all the textual variants of people trying to say, well, Junia wasn't a woman, it's really Junius, and whatever. There's plenty of other women who are co-ministers in the gospel with him. What are we going to do with those, those verses? And then that's when coming back to this idea that we're all picking and choosing when we interpret became foundational. Uh, so we go through that whole thing. Uh, and again, you've got elders who are trying to be open um, and are really trying to listen, and they know where they're coming from, and they know what's at stake, but we had some guys that this was just really difficult for, for a lot of reasons. Um, and there, there started to be some tension, and every time it happened, we had to kind of get that on the table and say, okay, are we going to, to have the grace to believe that everybody in this room really is seeking God's will? Right, that nobody in the room is some covert operative that's just trying to blow up Southern Hills for the sake of it. We're really trying to do something faithful here. Um, And we had to reassert that. Every time we sat down to talk, we would reassert that. We would recommit to listening that way. Not just to the words, but trying to listen to the heart of the person who was speaking. Um, The last meeting we had, we really focused on Acts 15 and God's preferred future. We broke up into tables. Um, we talked about where we were. We shared stories of times when God had worked to change your position on something that before you thought was black and white and clear, and now you, you either had changed your mind or you weren't so sure. Almost all of them, at least in our, tradi- our church, uh, our congregation, they ended up talking about instrumental music as the thing that they had started out feeling like if you did it, you were going straight to hell. To now, some of them preferred it. Um, we, we don't have instrumental music on Sunday morning, but pretty much everywhere else we worship in our church life, we do. Um, and so that was a safe thing to talk about, to say, well, how did we get there? How did that happen? Another thing that, that Southern Hills did that was really important in the past, you may have heard about this. It made national news. This was before I was there, but they launched a church called Bar Church that, that meets every Sunday morning in a bar. Now, you know, that kind of thing launches, and we got all kinds of nasty emails. Um, we were written up in every journal you could think of. One guy said, well, why don't we create a, a prostitute church and a crack church? And I was like, those all sound like pretty good ideas to me. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, why would you, these people don't, they need to jump through hoops to get to Jesus, right? And, and this eldership had decided, no, we're going to be the ones who jump through hoops to get to them. What you should know about Bar Church is it started out meeting in a bar um, during a time when they actually weren't serving alcohol, but it was in the bar nonetheless. Over time, the guy who owned the bar, who still owns the property, 
started being really convicted. He was overhearing the sermons. Um, and he started being really convicted. He said, I, he came to me, he said, I, I've been having a nightmare that every time I hear sirens at night, um, especially on, on Saturday nights where it's late and I've been serving alcohol, that I have contributed to somebody having an accident and I can't do this anymore. So he gave up his liquor license, he was baptized. Um, and now that church has become more of a, a church for addicts and people in recovery where it wouldn't be a good thing for them to be about around an open bar. Um, so it's changed, right? God's used it in some powerful ways. But when they first decided to, to launch that, they knew they were going to take heat. And they didn't just take heat from all the people who found out about it on the news. They took heat from people you can imagine, right? Some of us have histories in our families where alcohol has devastated um, our families. And people are thinking, you don't play around with that? You don't? What do you, what, there's no good that can come from this. Um, and they had to deal with that. It all changed on the first anniversary when Bar Church met with us. They meet with us sporadically. And it's always important uh, because they don't look like us. Um, they don't smell like us. They have to leave halfway through my sermon to smoke and come back in. Right? And everybody knows that's what they're doing. Um, they've got ankle bracelets. They've got, I mean, it's uh, with they're being tracked. Not a fashion thing. Um, it's important for that to be a part of us, right? And so, but the first anniversary, they come back, and they've baptized more people than Southern Hills has baptized in the last two years combined because they're there. They're where those folks are. That memory is a cornerstone in the self-understanding at Southern Hills of there are times God calls us to take a risk and do something for the sake of the mission, and we're going to take heat for it, but it's really important for us to, to have the courage to do it because it's how God works, right? So uh, that, that memory became something that, that people mentioned and said, this is like that. So we kept meeting. We met those three times. Uh, the elders ended up having some one formal uh, elder-only meeting. Uh, because one of the guys felt like he couldn't say what he felt in front of the staff. Um, I will say to you, I'm the one who gave them permission to have that meeting. They came to me. The full eldership who, who knew about it said, are you comfortable with this? We're not sure this is a good idea for us to meet without the staff. But this one elder is requesting it. Do you think? And I said, you know what? I trust you, and I think it's really important for him one way or the other. You need to have this meeting without us. They ended up having a couple of other informal meetings, um, which were primarily prayer meetings, before they came to a place where they could decide. And when they decided, they initially thought well, they, they're going to vote like 12 times on what women can do and can't do, like announcements. And like they broke down all this stuff. And it was to help us think we're going to do it like really like just far enough where it made some people uncomfortable, but we weren't going to lose anybody, you know, and people couldn't find a verse on announcements in the, in the Bible. So they were like, okay, that's okay. Um, but one of our elders, as they got closer to that night where they were going to make that decision said, this is ridiculous. This is about how we read those two texts. That's what we have to make a decision on. Um, then we're going to have to do the best we can as we think about integrating these kinds of times in our worship, but we can't, we can't vote on 12 things. Um, and, and they listened to him. And so when they voted, we had 19 elders. They voted 15 to 4. 
to read 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 as primarily um, historical situations, in particular churches that, that Paul was trying to address and deal with, but they were not intended to set the agenda, the kingdom agenda for men and women in the life of the church. Um, and then we took a lot of time to think about how we were going to share that with the church. We talked to all those, you know, we interviewed several churches, we got feedback from 35 different churches, and what we found was if you do a vote, which is really American and really Church of Christ, <laughs> someone's going to lose the vote. If you do surveys, all you learn is that people disagree on this, and somebody's going to feel like you didn't read the survey. Um, if you try to pretend you haven't already studied this and come to a decision, you're going to be accused of having a hidden agenda. And what we decided was what we couldn't survive in the current culture was to was to be perceived in any way as being dishonest. We had prayed, we had studied for 19 months, we'd made a decision, we needed to share that with the church. So that's what we did. Uh, and, you know, we have a membership of about 1,400. Um, in the next five to six weeks, we lost 100 people, um, which for a church of our size is a survivable uh, numerical event but those were all friends of people, people who'd been in our church for 30 years, people who had talked and talked and talked about being spiritual family, right? And then they were, and so one of the things then it became really important for the staff to do was to be chaplains to the elders, um, to, to be there for them, to let them vent, to talk about what was going on because some of their friends were the very people who were leaving. Um, but they felt like this was something they had to do. So I want to hand this out real quick. If, if I could have a little bit of help, um, hopefully I have enough for each person. Could you? Yes, yes, sir. I was amazed. I was amazed at how, how confidential it, it remained until we were ready to make the announcement. Yeah. Nope. No, and so this, this approach, I'll tell you this, it's tear the band-aid off, which is not a good way to talk about losing people, but what I'm saying is, is you go off a, you go off a, a mini cliff, right? Instead of, you announce a, a study, um, you lose people when you announce the study, you lose people the whole time you're doing the study in your church, um, they're fighting each other. One of the main things the elders decided was they were going to take the fire, they didn't want infighting. They wanted the church, if they were going to react, to react to them, not to one another. And that's exactly what happened. We didn't have anybody mistreating anybody else. We had plenty of people mistreating the elders, right? But that's leadership, or that's what we decided is, is leadership. So what, what I'm handing out to you is, you know, we go through this whole experience, and what I wanted to find out was uh, what, what exactly... Um, was it like to be a leader through all that? And why did they stick it out? Okay, so the first thing I did was I asked them a bunch of survey questions that were anonymous. Then I followed that up with an in-person interview with each guy. Um, not unsurprisingly, their interviews didn't exactly line up with the survey. Because uh, I think in surveys, you kind of answer the way you wish you were. 
But when you're sitting just in a room with one other person, the, the guard goes down and you admit, I was scared to death. Right on the survey, if you read it, they act like, uh, yeah, we should take risk for the sake of the gospel. Like that, yeah, automatically. Right? But then when you start talking about, okay, what's that actually going to mean, uh, they get really uncomfortable. So I want to n- walk through some of the results that I think are notable. Uh, the first is, this cracks me up, that a group of Church of Christ elders, 10 of them out of 16, said, I find change to be generally refreshing. <laughs> but I think it's true as long as it's not church. Right? Um, here's the other thing that's really interesting. This was at the end of the, the journey, and when I asked them, do you think culture shapes you? Eight of them said no. Out of 16. So we've got work to do, right, in terms of understanding how are we shaped by the culture. Brothers and sisters, I'll be honest with you. I think the two primary places we're trying to resist culture are abortion and homosexuality, but we're not resisting the culture of materialism or what we do with power when we get it or um, how fragmented our lives have become or, like, we're deeply encultured people, um, and we need to find a way to talk about that. Okay, one of the things that was difficult is they weren't clear on their own personal experience. They were very aware of yours and that you were bringing it to the table and they didn't trust it. But they didn't realize they were bringing personal experience to the table. Right? And Acts 15 is so important in this. I'm going to quickly um, walk you through that just theologically. Right? You've got things happening where God's reaching the Gentiles and things are clearly taking place that can't be ignored. Um, And so it's bucking tradition, um, and the church has to make a decision. So Paul and Barnabas come, and they're going to share stories of what they've witnessed God doing, right? They witnessed God at work. You've got some uh, church members who belong to the, you know, Pharisees, which those guys just can't win for losing in the Bible. But so they stand up and say, yeah, that's great that all those new things are happening, but that doesn't line up with what we've always done. It doesn't line up with how we've always seen it. And so then there's another round of sharing stories. And this time Peter kind of stands up and tells his story of what he experiences with Cornelius. And then James, who's the leader of the church, listens to all of this and says, okay, I'm going to strike a compromise. And the language he uses, before, by the way, before he does that, he quotes scripture that he believes describes what's happening. Right? So he's trying to say to those people who are really worried about the tradition, this is actually in our tradition. It's just the part we didn't, we didn't notice before. It's not that they're scuttling scripture, but they're going back to scripture for the sake of the mission. He says, okay, Amos had a day. He described a day where these kinds of things were going to happen. So he writes this letter, and it's a messy compromise. In fact, Paul's going to make it clear in Galatians, he doesn't like the compromise. He thinks James is wrong. Luke doesn't tell you that in Acts, but Paul tells you that later. Right? He's not in, Paul's not into compromising, right? Um, Paul just could not have been a lot of fun. But anyway, so he, James writes this letter, and he uses a really important phrase in it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Not, God told me. Not, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt this is exactly what we should do. The leader of the church in Jerusalem has the humility to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to do this. Uh, and... And I told the elders, that's the kind of language we've got to use. 
It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to do this. And here's the main thing that, that I think we need to hear from Acts 15 as a tradition. The Holy Spirit loves a good argument. A healthy, honest argument. Not a toxic one. If what God wanted was for them to make one decision on the other side of their disagreement, God would have told them exactly the decision they should make. In Acts 15, what we learn is that God cares more about how we treat one another when we disagree than the solution we come to. Okay, and so we talked about that in the survey. Uh, when we get to the place where we say uh, on page three, God cares more about how we treat one another than what we believe. And you can see we have two elders, one who disagrees and one who strongly disagrees that how we treat one another is more important than what the doctrine we hold. We've got work to do, right? When we have elders that are that concerned that the primary thing they're supposed to do is hold the line instead of hold someone closer, we, we've got work to do. Um, if you go to, to page uh, five, I want to show you real quickly. You can see really easily the one guy who stayed on our eldership who, who voted no. You, you don't even have to, you know, be great at reading surveys to notice. And here's what I want to point out to you. What do we have till? Does anybody know when I'm supposed to be done? 45? Okay, good, we're good. Otherwise, go with God or whatever. So, um, okay, look, here, here's what I want to point out to you. I've talked to this guy multiple times. I'm in a relationship with him. I'm telling you right now, he trusts himself more than the group. And he, he thinks the Holy Spirit talks to him more than it talks to anybody else. So because he lost the vote, we didn't listen to the Holy Spirit. That's a really difficult problem. Here's why I think he, he's thinking that way. It's how we talk about the Holy Spirit in the churches of Christ. It's some vague internal thing that's like a Christian conscience that speaks to you individually and you either listen to it or you don't. You know, interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit usually leads you to do what you already want to do in that form. Um, if you read Acts, the Holy Spirit, when it works through individuals, even when it works through individuals, it's for the sake of the community. It's never just for the sake of the individual to feel special or important or like, like they heard directly from God just for them. But that's how in our, even beyond Churches of Christ, I mean, it's kind of how we talk, that's our use for the Holy Spirit, right? The only other use for the Holy Spirit I heard growing up was it helped me rightly interpret the Bible. Me. It helped me rightly interpret the Bible. Um, if you disagreed with me, you weren't listening to, to my Holy Spirit. That's way too individual, right? So you look at this. This guy, we said, as church leaders, we value healthy conflict. We got one guy who strongly disagrees, right? Because his definition of healthy conflict is he wins it. We use healthy conflict to achieve understanding and creative solutions. Strongly disagree. You know, uh, in our leadership, everyone feels safe to ask questions and speak their minds. He strongly disagrees, even though every meeting we had, everybody knew what he was thinking because he talked. And there was a space for that. 
But when you start redefining safe and healthy as I get my way, and I'm telling you, he's indicative at some level, of all of us at different times and places in our lives, but he's indicative of many of the people in our churches who are going to look at a decision, and if they can't get there, they're going to say, you're being unfaithful because I'm uncomfortable. Those two things, those two things are not of equal theological weight. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to be uncomfortable. Uh, when you're faithful. So we've got to kind of think through those difficulties. There's a climate of trust and transparency in our church leadership, right? Strongly disagree. Maintaining church unity is possible without reaching agreement on big issues. We've got four elders who there say, no, I'm afraid that if we can't agree on the issues, we can't actually stay together. I, I read Paul... I'm sure I'll disagree with myself in 45 minutes. But right now, I read Paul primarily concerned with saying, if you add anything to your conviction that the best way to live life is the way of Jesus and that salvation is experiencing that life, if you add anything to that, you're going to, to divide the church. That, I think that's what Paul's whole project is about, to say, our tendency is to add to Jesus whatever else it is that we think is really important. And when we do that, we start to create reasons for us to divide and not stay together. We can all agree that the Jesus way of life is the best way of life, and we're trying to support one another in living it, and that the more we experience that way of life, we are, we're getting to feel uh, that salvation journey happening, Right? But, but in our tradition, we've got a lot of other things on top of Jesus. Jesus is the tradition. <laughs> Anything beyond that gets us into a lot of trouble. And, and I think one of the things that, that's so important about Acts 15, uh, and we're going to go to page uh, 6 here in a moment, but what, what's so important in Acts 15, and I need you to hear this, the danger to the future of the church in Acts 15 is not innovation, it is tradition. That precedes Jesus. It's, it's the tradition that's threatening the future of the mission, not innovation. And I grew up thinking the opposite was true, that the way to stay safe and faithful was to keep trusting the tradition pretty much blindly, um, and that innovation was the danger. But Acts 15 seems to tell a very different story. Okay, so I asked them to basically rank... All the different factors that, that I said, okay, these were the different resources you leaned on to make your decision. And I just want to mention a few things. These are obviously averages of all of their scores. Yeah. This is all just our 16 elders. That's it. The staff uh, was not a part of the study. Um, so, the first thing... Uh, the most important thing was their own private personal view of the issue. Which I think is very honest, but I think it's something that we need to, to push back on in healthy ways to say, okay, I know where I'm coming from, but I really want to create space to hear what the group is, is wrestling with. And I think they tried their best to do that. But I'm, this, these surveys were taken after we had reached a decision. 
right? So they're still reflecting back on that journey, as communal as it was, and they're saying, I still, at the end of the day, I had to come down to what did I personally believe? I think it's important. Um, I think we don't want our folks giving in, whether they're leaders or not, to just peer pressure. Um, but I also think we need to wrestle with uh, how much, when it comes down to it, um, I'm going to trust myself and my gut. Um, and there's some implications for that. And I don't, honestly, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm not saying there's a, there's a huge danger there, but I just know that there's a potential there um, for even though we're in rooms and we're talking and we're trying to listen, that we may not be able to move if the primary thing we're doing is kind of a gut check all the time, right? So elder-only conversations is number two. What does that say about their relationship to the staff? A little bit. Um, I think it's also that the roles are different. The roles are different. And they feel like they're going to have to answer, I think, to God and the church in a way they don't feel like the staff has to. Now, the staff wants to say, um, my family goes to church here. This is the way I make my living. Like, but you don't realize how much skin I have in this game. But ultimately, there is a difference in roles and they needed to have a sense of themselves and with the other elders, this is where they were going. Um, the next thing was that it took us 19 months to study, to pray, and come to a decision. That's a long time. Um, and that time period was really important to them. This has been increasingly important for us to learn because with 16 elders, at any given time, you have somebody who is off on their own trying to fix something and they're not actually talking to the whole group. And sometimes that can cause some problems and they want to fix things quickly. But this process helped us realize how important that time period was. So we have some, some elders who we lost 100 people. And what some of those people said is, what's next? Jared's going to be doing gay marriages in the auditorium. Right? That's, that was the, the fear. So we have about three or four elders right now who really feel like the next thing we need to do is get up and tell people um, what we feel about the homosexual conversation, right? The, the issue there is we haven't begun to do any sort of journey together to understand that better. And so one of the things I've been able to do is say to them, guys, this worked for us really well. We need to make sure we don't lose this culture of taking time to pray and study and speak together before we jump to a conclusion about something. Because I promise you, we will do a bad job if we rush. Um, and, and there's some built-in trust because of this uh, experience. Okay, so you get to four, and finally you've got an integration of the staff uh, with the elders. And again, out of 20 factors for the staff to be at four, I think is a good thing. You know, even as a, as a preaching minister, I think that's, that's something that made me feel like there is trust, um, that, but there's a difference in roles. Um, and then they started, we, we just kind of worked down. You get to six, and you're at the Holy Spirit's guidance. Seven is a clarifying moment. You felt certain about your position on the issue, which is, again, kind of back to that personal reflection. Um, and it's really most about your, your gut take. Um, and as you go down, you see, the, the, the two things I want to point out to you near the bottom, uh, on, the, on the actually right at the, the second half, so 11, it says your hope for how the church might respond to the change. 
You go down uh, to 16, and it's your fear for how the church is going to... I'm going to tell you right now, that fear should be number one. It should not be uh, 16 in terms of what, what impacted their decision. Um, it should either be one or two. Because once they got to a place of realizing what they thought they needed to do to be faithful, they were scared to death. We were, we were all anxious about how to do it, how to do it well, how to stay the course, how to talk to people. Um, and we're, we're at the end of our time. Um, we'll have some time for questions tomorrow, and I'll have a second handout with some, some suggestions of what did we learn, what worked the best for us, what are we going to do next time. Uh, but what I want to say to you is, what our church needed after the announcement was not a clear theological explanation of why we did what we did. I offered that. They needed shepherds who listened to them in their distress. Um, and that was a challenging thing. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. How do you help elders stop thinking that the answer to people's fear is theology instead of presence? Um, thanks for being here.